Welcome to the Boom Clap Podcast. This week we have another seriously important episode for you guys. Um, We are interviewing another uh, gentleman from Shanghai who was in um, COVID, quote, jail, as he called it, and you will hear that at the end. But last week's episode and this week's episode where we interview uh, Mason, this really um, just amplifies things going on here in America and in Canada that are so important regarding free speech and just how the um, the unraveling of free speech is getting a foothold to um, potentially lead us in the direction that China has went and where they are now. And it's so easy for us to look at things happening and think that is terrible. And it's so far away. Thankfully, it's not happening here. But guys, this stuff is happening here just to a smaller degree. And we're consistently letting it in more and more. So we're going to get into that in just a second. But first, last week on um, the episode with Elizabeth, and we got into the mandates just a little bit and how things were happening in Canada. And Cecily had brought up that, you know, really, it's um, just getting on a plane, um, public transportation, that kind of thing with vaccine passports right now in Canada. And there was a message sent to her, you know, don't forget uh, healthcare workers and federal employees and things. And guys, we just want to say, regardless of whether we acknowledge it verbally um, on an episode, we never forget the healthcare workers, the military, the um, police, federal workers that are still subject to these mandates on a daily basis. I lost my job. Um, I When I go to the grocery store now, I don't have any money from my own paycheck to use that I have had for my entire adult life, you know, and that's okay. It's actually kind of maybe um, given me a different perspective and, you know, strengthened me in other ways. But um, what I'm saying is I don't forget. I'm incapable of forgetting. And so is Cecily. Mm-hmm. So um, Cecily does have something to read that was sent to us just as a way we can help if we're interested in helping these healthcare workers in Canada. Yeah. Just so you know, you guys, we are with you, like with all the healthcare workers, with the federal workers as well. So this lady that I'm going to read a message from, she got in touch with me through a mutual friend. So they ha- they started a group called BC Healthcare Heroes and what they're doing Well, I'll just read her message. It's the easiest way to do it. She says, I'm one of the leaders of a large group of nurses that are working with lawyers here in BC that are not only fighting against the privacy concerns of the recent mandates, but also fighting back on the actual mandate that caused nurses to lose their jobs back in November 2021. We have joined with a large group of BC doctors and are now fighting back on the November 2021 acute care mandates. The hope is that if we can win this, our union will have no choice but to give us back our jobs since the mandates will have been crushed. And that is what our unions are using as the reason we can't get our jobs back. The nurses are needing to fundraise money for this and we need help. So from what I understand, they need more nurses, more more midwives to join the retainer for the legal agreement. And you guys, it sounds like I just read an article this morning that these healthcare professionals that are bringing up these challenges in court are in a good position because the government wanted to um, remove the ability to do that, but the courts have struck that down. So these things are free to move forward in the court system. So if you're a healthcare professional or if you're just a BC resident who is tired of this and wants to help, you can go to bchealthcareheroes.ca to 
um, support them financially or to join the cause. So I hope some of you guys will check that out. Great. Thanks for reading that, Cecily. Mm-hmm. All right, guys, let's get into this week's episode. We are covering first, at the end, we'll play our interview with Mason. He really uh, ties in with what's happening here and why it's important and why we need to pay attention to Shanghai. Like I keep saying, for the humanitarian issues, obviously, that is the obvious reason. But also because what's happening there is also happening on a smaller scale here and it's progressing. Mm -hmm. So listen to that at the end. Listen to last week's episode with Elizabeth. It also really sets up why this is important. But we're going to talk about Bill C-11, which uh, plays off of Bill C-10 in Canada, and then also the DHS Disinformation Governance Board, so Department of Homeland Security Disinformation Governance Board here in America. Oh, it's going to be, <laughs> there's a, there's so much I want to say right now. So Cecily, if there's something you want to lead off with, go for it. No, no, you are fired up. So I want you to like lead the charge and all right. I'll have so, a conversation with you. Okay. So the first thing I'm going to say is this DHS disinformation governance board is already being challenged in small ways. I think that there's been questions to its constitutionality and then, um, I, I believe I just saw this morning that there are a few states that are already challenging it um, in the court system. So one thing that I want to bring up right off the bat, we've talked about the Elon Twitter situation um, several times here. I've talked about it on social media. And one thing I keep saying is, you know, no one person can save freedom of speech. You know, there's mm-hmm. going to be a tax on his attempt, you know, or there's, there's disagreements on whether he's trying to save free speech or not, but let's just say he is. And mm-hmm. there's going to be attacks on and attempts to stop it. And this disinformation governance board is one of those attempts. You know, this, this came out right away afterwards. And they're saying, you know, they're using um, border security and other things like to shroud the intentions of the board itself. But this is an attempt to attack freedom of speech. And Twitter, I've said this before, Twitter has a problem with free speech because people, because culture has a problem with free speech. And so no one person can save this. This is upon our shoulders as Americans, as Canadians to see the importance of freedom of speech and try to promote it. And when we hear stories like what is happening in Shanghai and we hear how their media because of how their country is run, their media is controlled by the government. These people, you know, we hear um, Mason will tell you that um, this is, how did he say it, Cecily? This is a- The um, consequences of an overly compliant society. Yes, the consequences of an overly compliant society. And you can think, well, those people just need to stand up. But Elizabeth, as she explained last week, these people do not have access Mm -hmm. to a freedom mindset because they do not have access to information. They Mm -hmm. have access only to the information their government allows them to see. So when freedom of speech is stalled and halted, you lose access to information and your thinking changes, your mindset changes over time, and it does not take that long. So this is so important for us to understand why we need to be able to talk freely. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really dangerous thing when that 
ability to have free speech starts to slip. We heard the same thing from Elizabeth. Like this government owned media in China is dangerous. I would argue that the government owned media in Canada is dangerous. And we're seeing more of this coming with the Bill C-10, Bill C-11. We're seeing the same thing happening in the US with this I get it wrong every time, but this disinformation governance board, it just, what it does is it increases the power of a few. So we're talking big tech companies, government, they're determining what is true, what can be said, but that's exactly what China is doing right now. But that doesn't mean that what's being said is true. And I just, I hate the notion that the people, the public are incapable of reading information and sifting through it and determining what is right and wrong, what is true and false. Like, I don't know about you guys, but I feel like we're not that stupid. You know what I mean? Like, of course, there are people that fall prey to actual false information, but a lot of what's being called false information or bad speech is actually just speech that people don't necessarily like. And that's that's not okay. Yeah. So just... Adding on to that a little bit, I think about, you know, people who people who do not think deeply about this mm-hmm. just think if there's misinformation or if there's something that is wrong on the internet, that is dangerous because someone could be harmed reading that and going ahead and doing it, okay? Mm-hmm. Like somebody posts, you need to jump off a cliff. And then somebody just like, oh my gosh, I need to go jump off a cliff. Like that would be <laughs> dangerous, right? Yeah. And so like, but – Is it really that dangerous? Or can somebody read like, oh, no, that seems stupid. I'm not going to do Mm. that. But Mm. if you have a one, you know, one uh, entity controlled media Mm. and it's being posted, you need to jump off a cliff. You need to jump off a cliff. Like this is a stupid example. But like (laughs) just think through it, you know. Very tangible Um, example. Then – you know, you only have that one piece of information and it's bad information, but if it's repeated over and over, you know, and that's all you have access to, eventually you think that's the good information and that is true Mm. information. And that is the major problem. So what is more dangerous? Um, Having many opinions and some of them being majorly inaccurate or having one opinion and the danger of that opinion itself being inaccurate. Okay. So I think it's much, much less dangerous to have multiple opinions and us having the capability to use our brains. The danger is people stop using their brains. Totally. I think a really popular saying that's going around right now in the media is misinformation kills. Well, let's just think about that for a second. Like that line in itself is misinformation. Misinformation doesn't kill. Like maybe, maybe in some cases that are extremely, extremely rare, but they're making it sound like this is happening every day on a huge scale. Like people are dying because of misinformation. But to me, that's like major hyperbole and misinformation. And it's so interesting that they'll say something like misinformation kills. And by saying that they're speaking misinformation. So I don't know. I just think it's. Yeah, like you said, if you're not thinking deeply about it, some of that can sound good. Like, oh, yeah, let's get rid of misinformation. That's bad. But it's like, no, it's not actually killing. Um, We just need to retrain our minds how to think through information. Yeah, well, let's look at just a couple tangible examples really quick. We talked about the Hunter Biden laptop a few weeks ago. That Mm -hmm. was pulled down as misinformation. 
before mm-hmm. an election. An election mm-hmm. was swayed by something that was said to be misinformation by these fact-checking entities that was actually true. Um, let's talk about COVID for a second. You know, um, anyone talking about supplementation, vitamin D, which has been proven mm-hmm. to be yes. not like an effective treatment, but something that attributes um, better outcomes, right? Mm-hmm. That information was being pulled down. Um, the lab leak theory was being pulled down. Um, all of those things turned out to be true. So the fact checkers mm-hmm. were fact checking. And if you guys want to um, listen to an episode about mm-hmm. that, uh, episode 30, Anatomy of a Fact, we talked about fact checkers. And, oh, I want to add in too, Cecily, you said, mm-hmm. you know, you keep getting it wrong, what it's called, di- the DHS Disinformation Governance Board. It's because yeah. if you've heard um, on social media, Ministry of Truth, yeah. that's what it's being like kind of facetiously called. It's easier um, to remember. <laughs> yes, on the internet. But it's essentially what it is. And it's yeah. Orwellian. So mm-hmm. um, I want to read really quick from the pointer um Pointer.org, an article about what we know about the DHS Disinformation Governance Board. And speaking of Pointer, we also talk about this institute in episode Mm -hmm. 30. They are a fact-checking entity. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's interesting to read from them what they think about the DHS Disinformation Governance Board. Okay, so... They say, revelations that the Department of Homeland Security is assembling a disinformation governance board ignited a firestorm on Twitter in late April. Conservatives and other critics denounced the board as an Orwellian power grab on the part of the Biden administration. While some liberal accounts argued that it might be a useful tool in correcting the record on disinformation harmful to the public and that it's not actually that powerful. Mm -hmm. Information on the board is currently sparse, but here's what we know so far. It will be directed by Nina Yankowitz. I think I'm pronouncing her name right. Not sure. Apologies if I didn't. A fellow mm-hmm. at the Wilson Center, a D.C.-based non-governmental organization dedicated to the independent research on global issues. Real quick on the Wilson um, Center. The Wilson Center is chartered by was chartered by Congress in 1968 as the official memorial to President Woodrow Wilson. It is the national key nonpartisan policy forum for tackling global issues through independent research and open dialogue to inform actionable ideas for the policy community. So this is who she works with slash for. And uh, if you know anything about Woodrow Wilson um, and it's in his legacy, probably not bipartisan. Okay. (sighs) Uh, The board will collate and distribute best practices for countering disinformation purveyed by the United States enemies. The board is currently a small working group in DHS with no operational capability um, or sorry, operational authority or capability. What it will do is gather the best practices in addressing the threat of disinformation from foreign and state adversaries from cartels and disseminate those best practices to the operators that have been executing and addressing this threat for years. DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas told CNN. Mayorkas also said the board will not will not do what many of its critics fear, surveilling citizens. He said its focus will instead be on entities that represent a threat to the security of the homeland. Okay, two things I want to um, bring up there really quick when it, they say it will not surveil its citizens. One, We just learned this week Mm -hmm. the CDC actually paid, um, what was it called? Um, I forget. Oh, I can't remember the cybersecurity place they they paid, but they paid for information about um, 
your movements throughout society during COVID to track and trace you, okay? And the company they use is owned by the former um, intelligence agency head for Saudi Arabia. Second thing I want to bring up when he says we will not do this, we cannot forget that in February, um, February 7th, to be exact, of this year, 2022, um, the DHS put out a bulletin summary, summary of terrorism threat to the U.S. homeland. And it says the United States remains in a heightened threat environment fueled by several factors, including online environment filled with false or misleading narratives and conspiracy theories and other forms of mis, dis, and mal information introduced and or amplified by foreign and domestic threat actors. These threat actors seek to exacerbate societal friction and sow discord and undermine public trust in government institutions, encouraging unrest, which could potentially inspire acts of violence. This goes on. I won't read the whole thing to you, but my point is, Pointer Institute is trying to tell you, oh, this is just, you know, a board to look at mostly foreign, you know, uh, threats to society. Meanwhile, they're literally putting out a bulletin explaining to you how people, just like random people like you and me, posting and talking about things on the internet are sowing mm-hmm. discord and potential terror threats and basically saying that the the main problem is that we could sow friction and undermine the government. Okay, mm-hmm. look at what's happening in China. Yeah. The, the government deserves to be undermined, society. right? Like, Absolutely. <laughs> so you guys just put this all together in your mind and tell me how this isn't important. Tell me how the bedrock is not being, you know, laid for what mm-hmm. is happening in China to also happen here. Explain that to me, someone, please. Because when people yeah. look at me like I'm crazy, I am not crazy. <laughs> you sure, Rita? I'm just kidding. Or maybe I am, but I don't know. <laughs> Yeah. You know what? The very beginning of the article honestly caught my attention right away. And it's not because of something they said necessarily, but what they're not saying. So in the part where it says conservatives and other critics denounce the board as an Orwellian power grab on the part of the Biden administration, while some liberal accounts argue that it might be a useful tool in correcting the record on disinformation harmful to the public and that it's not actually that powerful. So basically it's telling us that it has no operational control. Like it's not actually, it doesn't have any power, but the thing is it doesn't need to have power. It's just, it's going to be another example of these are the experts. They're saying that this is disinformation. We need to take it down. They're saying that this is the, the steps that we take to counter disinformation. They're the experts. We need to listen. And when anyone tries to counter that, they'll be like, well, you're not the expert the disinformation governance board is the expert. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And let's think about this too. So the CDC doesn't actually have any power, right? They don't have any governing authority over any single American. Mm -hmm. They have no governing authority. But who governed all of the last two years? The CDC, you know, spoke and everything followed, you know, yeah. Laws followed suit. And there weren't, weren't even laws, just, you know, uh, words yeah, put is. into place that had no governing authority, but they were followed and enforced. So yeah. it, it doesn't matter if they say there is no actual authority or no um, mm-hmm. governing ability. It, it, it doesn't matter. It matters what happens. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It matters what happens. 
Well, and Fauci, too, has recently said, like, you know, he thinks it's bad that the courts have the power to make these decisions about mask mandates, etc. He thinks that should be a public health decision. But it's like, no, no. Why would it be a public health decision? Like, you can make your recommendations fine. But he's basically saying the courts should not have the power. The power that the courts have should be transferred to public health. That's not how it works. No, no. In America, we have a three-headed eagle. We have a three, you know, three-branch system, and it's supposed to work together. Mm-hmm. So, I don't think public health is not the fourth eagle. No, no. I mean, I'm not American. <laughs> I don't know for sure. But no. Yeah. Um, one other thing I want to bring up, I had gotten a comment on a post talking about this uh, Twitter thing the other day, and I just want to bring this up so everyone's clear. Um, somebody... Somebody who commented said, I think this whole thing is weird. The term free speech is being a being abused because free speech can be hate speech in fabricated words. And so I just want to clarify, like the better term would be freedom of speech. And hate speech is not free because there are consequences mm-hmm. attached. So when people try to come at you like Uh, tearing down freedom of speech because people could be harmed and Mm -hmm. um, because of hate speech. Hate speech has consequences attached. You cannot go around saying certain things. There are consequences. And so that speech is not free. That is not included Mm -hmm. under an umbrella of freedom of speech. Yeah. And that also asks the question, like, people need to define their terms. So what is hate, hate speech by law? And what is hate speech in your mind, exactly. you know, like there's a difference. Yes. Same thing with violence. Like Rita, remember on one of our past episodes, we had talked about one of your posts was taken down and it said that it was violent and there was <laughs> yeah. nothing violent in it. So again, it's like, okay, well define your terms. Like what is hate speech? What is violence? Does it match up with what the law actually says those things are? Yeah. It's like, it was we're, because we're creating... I talked about the history of the Holocaust, I think is what right. it got taken down for. Yeah. And it's scary to think like that's a major part of world history. And if we can't Mm -hmm. learn from that, what, like what, (laughs) what? Yeah. So I don't know. It's like we're redefining things so rapidly without any actual authority to do that. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And on the lines of definition, like I just wanted to clarify, I clarified to this person, you know, you are free to say whatever you want. You just may not mm-hmm. be at liberty to do so. And so freedom exactly. and liberty There's are a different. Difference. And mm-hmm. um, there is no liberty behind actual defined hate speech. Exactly. Yeah. So when people come at you and try to tear down your argument about freedom of speech um, by way of hate speech, you can just simply clarify hate speech is not free speech. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's really good. All right. Um, what else do you want to tackle on this? <laughs> I feel like yeah. I've just been so fired up. No, well, it's, it's something worth being fired up about. So then across the border in Canada, we've got this Bill C-11 situation. And Rita and I have been trying to go through this bill and uh, all the supporting documents And it is so long, so convoluted, so hard to make heads or tail of. And um, that in itself is a concerning thing. You know, like that, that in itself is concerning. It's not like we're illiterate people, but it is so hard to understand. And it's being portrayed 
um, by conservatives as something that's a, a grave threat to free speech and to the things that we will see on media. And on the other end of the spectrum, it's portraying it as the exact opposite. And it's just a way to like expand um, true Canadian culture in the media and minority groups, etc. But there's so many holes in that as far as we can tell, like it is so convoluted. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. I think that that's uh, an across the board issue uh, in lawmaking. There's so much legalese used that Mm -hmm. I doubt that our um, lawmakers even read this stuff. You know, I mean, it's, they're always (laughs) so long and so much legalese. And like Cecily said, we are far from illiterate, but it's just um, put together in a way. And, I would say purposefully so Mm. that you don't really know exactly what the bill means, right? And I think that there's some purpose behind that because if you leave the public feeling too overwhelmed to try to understand something, they won't try to understand it. They'll just let Mm. it go, you know, and there's purpose behind that. Another thing I want to mention on this, though, This obviously is um, freedom of speech related. It is controlling media, is controlling algorithms and what you will, or not Mm -hmm. controlling algorithms, but forcing an an algorithm essentially, and therefore controlling what you see and hear. Mm -hmm. And this same thing is happening at the exact same time in both of our countries. And so I want to point out how closely tied together all the legislation is right now mm-hmm. in the West and mm-hmm. um, therefore showing the underpinnings of the world, you know, one world government we're moving towards, you know, regardless mm-hmm. if it is one government, go, sorry, one governing body. Um, we also have our individual governments, but they're all moving the same direction and therefore have the same like umbrella over them or underpinnings, however you want to look at it. Um, Okay, one reason I think that Bill C-11 is confusing a bit is because it seems to be tied to um, making some changes to Bill C-10. And either way, it's all about the media. And one thing I found interesting in it is there was a Canadian media fund, it said. And so what I found that to be is it funds officially, officially recognized Canadian content. And so... To me, they're basically picking and choosing winners and losers in media and who gets to be seen. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know. Just. Yeah. And like something they try to stress in the bill is that they are not forcing an algorithm or creating an algorithm or causing these companies to create algorithms. But they're doing exactly that by by saying this is the content that you need to favor, right? So it does the same thing effectively, but they're just not having to admit to it. Like we've seen the same thing happen over and over again throughout the COVID scenario as well. So very interesting. In this this openmedia.org article, it says, Mm -hmm. prove you're Canadian enough or watch your views drop. Bill C-11 establishes (laughs) a two-tier system for Canadian Mm -hmm. creators. Those who find algorithmically manipulating content to be categorized as CanCon or Canadian content will mean Mm -hmm. that creators who don't meet CanCon requirements will be pushed down on feeds, while those who do meet the requirements will be prioritized. 
Yeah. Like, tell us that's not an algorithm. You know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> anyway, so yeah, like Rita said, this is all happening all across the West. So we've got this in Canada. We've got the Disinformation Governance Board in the U.S. And all happens at the same time. And it's not just our countries either. So there, it's hard to imagine that there's not some sort of playbook being followed. Yeah. Anyway. And it's important. So we're going to lead into Mason's um, Mason's interview here in just a second. But just think about the derailing of freedom of speech in our countries as you listen and try to understand. You know, I got some messages last week or this week, rather, as I posted about the Shanghai situation. And people were like, I just don't understand how like these people let this happen. Like, I don't understand not fighting back. I don't understand just like walking with them into a COVID jail, you know? And mm -hmm. I'm like, I don't either. But also I'm born and raised in America. I have been able to say what I want to say for the most part. You know, there's been censorship this year quite heavily, really. But um, I can still say what I want to say at the threat of it being taken down. No one's going to come knocking on my door yet, you know, and be like, you need to come with me to jail. So I'm free to say what I want. I've, you know, heard multiple viewpoints. I can listen to the liberal viewpoint here. I can listen to the conservative viewpoint. I can listen mm -hmm. to some people in between. I can find libertarians. You know what I mean? In China, you do not have that. And so mm -hmm. try to understand as you listen to last week's episode and this week's episode with Mason, um, try to understand that these people have been born and raised under one mindset, you know, one viewpoint of every situation. And so there's no diversity of thought. And when there's no diversity of thought, you you really limit your your mind's ability to come up with new ideas and new ways of looking at things. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, here's the interview with Mason. All right, Mason, thanks for coming on with us. Uh, last week, we had Elizabeth Liu on, and she kind of gave us a big overview of what was happening in Shanghai right now. Um, but Cecily actually sent me your stories today, and I was like, oh, man, we need to record with him too because this is just a different perspective. Um, you yeah. are actually in COVID, quote, jail is what <laughs> the highlight I watched. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but Mason, really quick before we get started, can you just tell everybody a little bit of your background? You're not originally from Shanghai, and just so people have a bit of perspective where you're coming from. Yeah, sure. So I'm originally from Melbourne, Australia, and I've been living in Shanghai now on and off for the past 10 years. Okay. All right. And yeah. so what brought you there? And I guess, um, have you otherwise been happy living in Shanghai up till this point? <laughs> yeah. So um, I first came to Shanghai, I think when I was like four years old, because my mom's originally from Shanghai. So I've been coming here okay. for, you know, trips and vacations, you know, ever since I was a kid. Um, but yeah, for the most part, um, up until the past month, yeah, I've lived a relatively relaxed and convenient life here. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so um, I guess first off, when Shanghai went into lockdown, I assume that you were uh, participating in the, I don't know, was it daily or however, you know, frequent testing. And I assume yeah. you became positive at some point. 
Yeah. Um, so they actually started testing, um, I believe, around the 10th of March. And they wanted to go through a process of staggered lockdowns throughout the city where um, certain compounds would lock down, but others would be remain open, right? And I think they did this because there was a capacity issue. You know, they weren't able to test all of the compounds at once. But that has since changed. And, you know, in the first week of April, they had mass testing uh, for um, my part of the city, which is Pushi, which is the western side of Shanghai. Whereas the week before that um, in Pudong, they did mass tests for um, that area, which is in the east of Shanghai. Okay. Interesting. Okay, so you turned positive then at some point, and yeah, so yeah, my my story is a bit uh, a, a bit of a different one. So um, okay, yeah, I, I tested positive on a, a rapid test on the thirtieth of March, and um, yeah, I, I, I don't know, I sort of panicked, right? Because I, I have I have cats at home, so um, obviously by that point in time. Um, yeah, I was worried about my cats, so I figured, all right, I'll contact the pet hotel, got a, got someone from a pet hotel to come and pick up the cats. Mm. And then after that, I think it was around about like one o'clock in the morning, like I still had to figure out, you know, who do I contact? Uh, because obviously I don't want to, I don't want to go downstairs and line up with people, share a lift with people and, mm -hmm. and, you know, possibly, you know, give them COVID, right? Um, so yeah, at around three o'clock in the morning, I got I got a hold of CDC and they said like, don't worry, we're gonna um, inform a worker. A worker calls me at five o'clock in the morning, um, and then uh, leaves some rapid tests by my door. I do one. My partner, she also does one, and yes, uh, I test positive, but she tested negative. So then the CDC sends someone to do a door-to-door -door PCR test for me but they don't send one for my girlfriend uh, mm -hmm. because uh, she tested negative on the rat test. But I was like, well, you know, we both share the same household. Um, she should also have one too. But um, the CDC worker then told me that she should isolate in a separate room. But then when I asked the CDC, like, hey, you know, um, should she be going downstairs to, you know, line up and, you know, participate in the, um, the, the, the sort of like group PCR tests? I didn't get a response back. So um, I, I think, um, I think, unfortunately, you know, they have many volunteers who don't know exactly what to do in this situation. Yeah. So were you actually sick? I guess that's my main question about. Uh... Um, yeah. Um, no, not really. I mean, like I had like a sore throat for like two days and like an upset stomach for like three days. But other than that, like, no, I, I think it was fine. Yeah. Okay, so you tested positive the 30th of March, and then when did you actually go to the facility? Um, we went to the facility, I believe it was on the 7th, so yeah, on the 7th of April. So let me have a look at my calendar real quick. Mm -hmm. So that's um, interesting. Yeah. So like maybe almost yeah. a week later after you've tested positive. Yep, yep. So yeah, actually I tested <laughs> I tested positive on the 31st of March. Yep. Okay. 31st of March. And then, and then, yeah, ended up going to the uh, quote unquote COVID jail. I call it a COVID jail because you cannot leave. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. I, I, that's why I call it a COVID jail. Um, yeah. We, I mean, I don't disagree with your statement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so like 
throughout the week, I was getting calls from CDC, from the police, and as well as my compound uh, management in regards to how do we proceed, right? And all of them had suggested that my partner and I go to separate uh, COVID camps. And I I wasn't happy with that because um, my girlfriend can't speak English. I mean, um, mm. she can't speak Chinese. <laughs> and, uh, oh, okay. Obviously, you could speak. Obviously, she can't speak Chinese. Um, so I, um, I was adamant that we go together. And you know, uh, at times I felt frustrated because you know I'd get calls from, I'd get calls from CDC or police saying that it was impossible. Uh, but I initially, I like, I had to get quite angry with them over the phone in order for them to really, you know hear me out and, and, and take me seriously. Um, then it, it, it happened on, it happened on the seventh, um, I believe at nighttime. Um, so seventh, technically the eighth, because it was, it was midnight. I got a call, um, from, um, I got a call from police saying that, okay, it's time. And I was like, what do you mean it's time? And in Chinese, obviously. And they're like, okay, um, you have to gather your things. You, you know, they're going to come and pick you up. And I was like, can I say no? I'm already asleep. You know, just you've just woken me up. And they were just like, um, look, if you guys want to go together, um, this, is, this is your chance. And I was like, okay, so what if I say no? And then they said, um, okay, if you say no, then over the weekend, you know, we'll come and take you and to separate facilities and I was like okay then I guess we have to go so then we gathered our things and around at it around 2 30 in the morning um we get a call on our intercom it's a, it's a police guard you know just um shouting at us telling us to come downstairs um we go downstairs and it's pretty surreal right you have like two people in hazmat suits one behind you and one in front of you and they're like spraying the air as you walk mm. out of the compound. Wow. And they, yeah, and they tell you to be quiet because they don't want to wake up anyone else in the compound to alert so, them as to, you know, yeah, what's going on. Yeah. So at this point, like, because like you said, you only had mild symptoms for a few days. Did your girlfriend test positive later on? Yes. Actually, later on, um, the next day, the, uh, after the, the day that I initially tested positive, yeah, she also tested positive too. Okay. So it's wild to me, like seven, yeah. seven days later, like what's the point of sending you to a facility other than you said like the police have also called you. So this is like a punishment, you know, for. Yeah, it's, it's honestly, <laughs> it makes, even for me, like I'm, you know, I, I can't really make any sense of it. Like I've tried to mm -hmm. rationalize it. I can't, you know, it's, um. It would have been much better off had they just let us uh, uh, get yeah. over it at home. And then, you know, yeah. yeah well, let's uh, be honest. There's not yeah. much rationalizing much of the COVID situation, regardless of what country you're in. But this is just insane. So it's next level. Yeah. 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 This, this is um, this is a level of encroachment that is. Um, yes. It, it's, it's, <laughs> it's quite scary, right? So, yeah. <laughs> encroachment. It is. Yeah. It's. <laughs> I don't even know the right word for it. It's, it, it's, yep. yeah, it's got those, yeah, Orwellian vibes, right? It's yeah. very, very yep. strange. Yeah. So tell us so, a little bit about yeah. what it was like when you arrived. And, and yeah, so, also um, when they transported yeah. you, were the vans like what we're seeing, like these windowless vans, or is it kind of like they're all different? 
they're all they're all pretty different. So the um, the bus that we took was just a regular hotel transportation bus, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, it didn't take long for us to get to the COVID camp. It took around about ten fifteen minutes on the bus, but you know, yeah, it, it was it was packed with people who visibly looked sick. Some of them were looked scared of getting sick you know they were wearing like multiple masks or visor Mm -hmm. to protect their eyes and stuff like that and the thing is i I just want to stress this you know in this covid camp you had people who were covid positive who were negative for covid but close contact and it Mm -hmm. didn't matter whether or not you were vaccinated um you could have i mean they ask for your vaccination record when you check into the facility um but it doesn't matter everyone is sharing the same uh the same the same space and yeah it 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 just it just didn't really make any sense at all right um yeah yeah well the the negatives and positives yeah yeah that's that's strange like if you are just a close contact i mean a really good way to catch covid is to be transported on a bus with people who are COVID positive and then stuck in a building with them, you know, essentially yep. it's just adding to the problem. Yeah. It's very interesting. Yeah the, yeah. the thing is, is that our facility itself, it, it consisted of two, two tents. So we had a main tent and the main tent, I believe fit around about 600 people. Whereas our tents, our, our tent fit a little bit more than a hundred people. So, um, fortunately, we got in, I believe, the second or third day that this camp had been open. So, there weren't so many people when we checked in. And luckily enough, we were able to get um, beds in the smaller tent. Right. I saw in your stories you had shown, you know, some, we call them porta pots here. Um, I don't know what yep. you call it. porta you... Yes. <laughs> Australian yeah, I thought that was yeah. a really cute way of saying in porta <laughs> yeah. It doesn't sound as good when I say it. No. Um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, then you panned over to the bathroom areas that were available to use. And you said there were only eight bathrooms for around 600 people. Yes, it ended up being like that. When we first got there, I believe that there were 34 toilets. So there were four stations for toilets, but one of them had already been taped off by the time that we had gotten there. And then uh, I'd say that like five or six days in, um, yeah, there were only eight usable toilets because the rest of the portaloos had broken down. That's awful. And yep. what and were the thing. shipping containers you showed on your stories? Yeah, so, um, yeah, my mom sent me that one. Um, yeah, they're running out of spaces to put people, right? So they are beginning to put tents on the sides of roads as well as shipping containers. And, um, yeah, they're trying to use any available space to facilitate zero COVID. It's just so hard to see how any of this could be rationalized. But, yeah, yeah. It, it, it doesn't it's impossible. make any sense, yeah, yeah. <laughs> unfortunately. Um, but, you know, it's quite, it's quite sad um, because in our, in our COVID camp, you know, like I overheard conversations from, um, uh, from just common people, you know, just like delivery men, for example, 
who, you know, would talk amongst, amongst themselves about leaving Shanghai and, you know, going to a different city for work because things here are too unstable. Or, you know, I overheard another delivery man who um, was arguing with his employer about not getting paid 1,000 RMB and how he really needed the money, right? So um, you can you can easily imagine that someone in that predicament, you know, you sort of have no other choice because you're getting three free meals a day and you have a roof over your head, right? Whereas uh, the alternative is go back into a lockdown uh, where you aren't getting paid. Uh, maybe you're getting paid minimum wage and you're not getting paid your, your, your normal salary. Minimum wage, I think, is like three or 400 US dollars a month. You have to deal Whoa. with price gouging. You have to pay your rent. You have to pay bills. You have to pay for all of your expenses on top of that. So yeah, it can be quite hard for for a lot of locals living in this city mm-hmm. to deal with this, wow. right? So um, I'm I'm quite fortunate in that regard. Um, I'm still getting paid by my work. Um, but yeah, it w- it was quite a surreal experience. You know, there's no shower. Mm-hmm. There's no shower there. Um, they don't provide any soap. Well, they didn't provide any soap until the second or third last day we were there. They they put two they put two little uh, pumps that you could use but they were all used up after a day uh unsurprisingly uh and um yeah it's just it it, it it it's not it's not a good solution in my opinion right so that that uh, yeah quite speechless to be honest <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no i can see why you would be speechless for me just like hearing your story and the last lady that we had interviewed it's a very surreal thing to hear it. And from where we sit, it's like, we think we have an understanding. Um, but then when you hear these firsthand stories, it's, it's completely different and it's very sobering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At, at first I didn't want to, I didn't want to document it, you know, but then mm-hmm. I thought like, this is, this might be one of those lo- once in a lifetime opportunities for myself to sort of capture a bit of it. And, and, you know, just, you know, use it as a time capsule for myself to remind myself, like, hey, I've actually been through something like this. I actually spent yeah. nine days in a in a COVID jail, right? So, um, oh yeah, yeah. So I I just want to also say that um that there was there were some problems with management in, in the camp itself. You know, so um, I believe a lot of the staff and volunteers who uh, volunteered for facilitating this um they don't have navigate everything right they don't know how to organize buses and arrange for people to go home you know they don't know how to you know properly dish out food to people you know this this is out of their regular day-to-day you know work responsibilities right Mm -hmm. so um yeah for them you know they were under a lot of strain as well and you could see that they were noticeably stressed and at the same time you had many um, old people who were developing onset symptoms for COVID complaining every morning, you know, um, that they weren't getting medicine uh, because the only medications that, that, that could be given out by staff were Chinese traditional medicines. Wow. Yeah. So this, just to clarify, these are isolation camps, essentially, to isolate people um, who yep. tested positive or close contacts from others. This is not a place to help people get well. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> it's, um, 
it's interesting because the entire time for the nine days that we were in there, a doctor came once. So I posted the video, like finally a doctor came up in there. Like mm-hmm. um, the, the context of that is that, you know, in the days leading up to that, you, you had every morning um, you could hear on the, uh, on the loudspeaker because I don't know, maybe some of the staff forgot to turn off their, their microphone. You'd hear like old people complaining and asking for medicine. And, you know, there'd, mm-hmm. there'd be, there'd be problems, you know, and they'd be yelling and shouting about it. And, you know, honestly, I don't blame them because, um, you know, you'd expect to at least get medicine, right, (laughs) to treat onset symptoms because we know that the best time to treat it, right, with therapeutics is (laughs) before onset symptoms develop, right? Early, (laughs) yep. So, yeah, what would happen, (laughs) say one of these elderly people or anyone really, what would happen if they would develop severe symptoms? Like, would they be transferred to a hospital to receive actual treatment? Do you know? Yeah, so so I did notice, I did notice a few elderly people who were, you know, just really resting and trying to, you know, conserve energy and whatnot um i we did see i I think i think an ambulance did come once like late at night to pick up to pick up like a person but other than that yeah um no one else was picked up um because we i I don't think we had anyone over the age of 80 but that's just a guess on my part but noticeably old right um but you know it's it's quite interesting because you know for people who are COVID negative in these tents, right? Um, many of them opted to move their beds outside and sleep outside. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's um that for me is also quite interesting. You know, um, that for me is very interesting because it just goes to show you know that that they know that being in such an environment could give them COVID and could end up having them stay longer in such a place, right? Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, my reason for wanting to sleep outside would be I just wouldn't want to sleep around all those people in general, even if everyone was perfectly yeah, yeah, healthy. Yeah, of of so as Canadians, and we I, like I just, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I just want to emphasize one point, guys. When you check into this facility, well, for us anyway, I'm not too sure about other places, but um, they don't screen for weapons. They don't screen for mental illnesses. They uh, mm. they just let everybody go in. That for me is yeah. a scary is, is a really scary part of it because you don't know what other people are going through. Right? Totally. And or, their life yeah. experiences. Yeah. Or yeah, what being in a COVID camp could do to someone that's perhaps a little bit unstable. Exactly. Yeah. And I think so all three of us here. Um, have seen the images you've posted and you obviously lived it. So you know what we're discussing. But for those of you um, listening, you can go check later and see on Mason's stories. He has it saved. But these aren't like walled off rooms of any kind. It's an open air tent with little tiny partitions between. So you can see every single person. Yep. Yep. There's no no privacy. Just for a visual. So people kind of can grasp that. But... Of course. Um, yeah, and also there were many cameras in both tents. Uh, so, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, it was very strange. Um, the, the, in the uh, bed area that we were staying in, uh, I had a camera directly on me. Oh and it, yeah, it, it, it was um, yeah pretty annoying. <laughs> it, it sort of got to me a bit. But um, 
you know, I, I'm I'm just glad to be out of there. But there there were so many things that that went wrong, you know, in regards mm-hmm. to this, and I had to sort of force my way out. So um, I'll I'll, I'll get into this a bit now. Um, our friend Grant from the UK, he was staying in the main tent, and he had gotten the required two negative, well, two consecutive negative COVID tests to get out. So um. He got it, he checked in, and he thought, okay, great, maybe I'll be able to go home today. One day passes. Still has, still no word on what's happening. He's, he's asking uh, staff at the camp, like, okay, um, can I go home today? They're like, yeah, sure, um, we'll, we'll get on to it for you. Another day passes, and he's starting to think to himself, okay, this is not right here. Mm-hmm. He goes and he complains again, and they say, Oh, yeah, yeah, we'll get onto it for you. So, again, you know, prolonging the process. And it wasn't until nighttime that he realized, hey, something's going wrong here. It's already been more than 48 hours since I got my test results back. Well, for the second consecutive negative COVID test. What am I still doing here? So, he went and he had an argument with him and he, he sort of had to. He sort of had to lose himself a bit, right? He sort of had mm-hmm. to get angry and lose composure a bit in order to, to get someone to speak with him. And what ended up happening is that um, the head doctor of uh, the, the, the hospital in charge of putting up this COVID uh, camp then contacted him, spoke to him in perfect English and said like, like, oh, um, sorry, uh, we don't have any of your details. Oh, my goodness. So it turned out that they had lost his check-in sheet. Ugh. So it was as if he didn't exist in there. And he could have mm. been there indefinitely had he had done nothing about it. And I think that's a very scary part of it all, you know. Everything was paper-based and nothing mm. was digitalized. And that, for me, you know, it just... I couldn't believe that myself, you know, um, because you're managing 700 people and you, you know, you, you, you're asking a lot of these staff who are just nurses to manage all of this when they don't have any uh, management skills. Right. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's um, fairly interesting. But he ended up getting out uh, uh, the next day. So after 72 hours, he ended up going home. Uh, fortunately, he had no problems on his end. But... I, it, it, it gave me it gave me a template for like okay how how I'm supposed to get myself out of here right mm-hmm. um, so the day that I get my second negative test my girlfriend had already gotten her second negative test the day before she had checked in and she was just waiting for them to get her on a bus so that she could leave but um, you know on that day, no word. And then the next day, um, I called up my mom. I told her the situation. And she's like, fine, just keep me on vid chat. Let's go and uh, line up so that you can check in for your two negative uh, tests. So uh, I told them my uh, my bed number. I told them that I had two negative tests. But then I asked them, okay, what about her? What about Haley, my girlfriend? Um, can she can she go today? And they were like, uh, we're, we're not too sure about that. Um, 
you know, maybe today, maybe tomorrow. And I was like, okay, then what about me? Oh, you know, maybe tomorrow you can go. We're not too sure. And I just, I went crazy. Like I, I, I went into a mode of which I've never, I've never been so angry before in my life, you know? Mm-hmm. And like, even now, like I'm struggling to describe it because I, I just went absolutely furious. And um, I felt like at this point in time, like, um, you know, I was trapped, right? Mm-hmm. So I was screaming, I was yelling and I was shouting. And then you, know, you can imagine like 600 people from the tent rushed to the main reception area, the entrance of the tent. And then I noticed something. I noticed that a lot of people began pulling up their phones to begin filming it. And as soon as I saw that, because I had to be aware of my surroundings a bit. I, as soon as I saw that, I stopped and I went silent. Hmm. And yeah, yeah. Because you were afraid mom, of what yeah. would happen if they. If, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. If, I don't. The last thing, the last thing that I want to happen is to go viral on Chinese social media. Okay. That is the very. That yep. is the very last thing that I want, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because once that happens, then you know, forget about it. You know, all lies on you. <laughs> And it becomes oh, okay. a big problem. So um, my mum was on the phone. She said, okay, um, pass the phone over to the has- uh, one of the hazmat staff. I-, I passed it over and um, she just said to them, because I wasn't capable of speaking at this point. I didn't want to speak at all. You know, I was just so filled with rage and anger. I felt like <laughs> I felt like I could have been a danger to others around me, right? So mm. I-, I needed to calm down. I needed to be composed. So um, she told she told the staff member I was speaking to that, like, look, we're in contact with Australian media. Um, if you don't let him out by today, him and his girlfriend out today, we are going to do a live from the COVID jail and we're going, we have no problem showing them everything. Mm-hmm. And then automatically they're like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah we, we, we get the point. And then they rushed to, to, to get us out. <laughs> Okay, so this is a common thread in both conversations we've had. When we spoke with Elizabeth, there was a person she knew who uh, was Chinese and their friend was British, I believe. And she had um, pulled the, we're going to call the BBC card to get this person who had tested negative, but they were telling him like, no, you're positive and you need to go to this facility. That's how they got that halted. And so- This is very interesting because we're going to talk about Cecily and I on the rest of this episode just a little bit about um, some things happening within Canada and the United States regarding disinformation and our media kind of um, being hijacked um, and freedom of speech being hijacked. And so that's a dangerous situation. And that's what, you know, happens with Chinese media. And then when you bring in, you know, an outside media source and a threat of an outside media source, they do get some get concerned and get some reaction, right? Yep. Yep. I, I would like, I would like to say that what's happening here, you know, the, everything that's happening here are consequences of an overly compliant society, yes, right? Where, yes. where people, where people just um, go with the narrative, right? And yeah, we do have to question things, you know, we can't just blindly go with whatever we hear, right? Um, yes. We, yeah. We, yeah. We, yeah, and I think, yeah, I think that best sums it up, um, unfortunately. But, um, <clears throat> yeah, we also had the bus ride home, and on the bus ride home, 
um, we saw some interesting things. So we, we, we managed to see many of these volunteers on the streets uh, just with like blankets, covers, and sort of just like resting on the streets, either in small blue tents or just out in the open. And um, yeah, you'd see them by, yeah, you'd see them outside of uh, apartment compounds um, near metro stations. And yeah, it was, it was pretty surreal. It was very interesting. We didn't want to tell the drivers who were in hazmats like, hey, we live close by. We were like, okay, let's try and milk this situation. Let's try and get the best out of it <sighs> and see exactly what's going on. So we ended up having an, a one hour and 40 minute bus ride around Shanghai. And, you know, what we saw was just, wow, it was, re- it was surreal. You know, they had, they had barricaded roads off entirely you know they had um boarded up many establishments i even saw one park called fuxing park that they had just barricaded entirely they put they put like blue blue barricades over it and um it just shocked me i was just like thinking wow mm-hmm. um yeah <laughs> yeah so don't know I how to <laughs> describe it yeah yeah no, that's. I think it was really smart of you guys to be driven around a little bit because there's so much value in seeing things firsthand, mm-hmm. um, yep. not just in your own area, but like you said, all around Shanghai. Um, so you said something a little bit ago. You said this, and it's a very quotable quote. You yeah. said, these are the consequences of an overly compliant society. So yep. I don't know you at all as a person. And so this question you know, I, I have no idea what your answer could be to it. So I've just wanted to pose it like, sure. would you say that you a year ago or even six months ago would have seen the danger of an overly compliant society in the same way you see it now? Yeah, it's definitely changed. So this has definitely changed my perception as to how all of this is, you know, happening. Right. Right. Um, I, I, I honestly believe that had you had told me that and that had any of this, you know, was going to happen six weeks ago, I would have thought you were crazy, right? I would have thought you were absolutely yeah. crazy, but, um, yeah, it's all happening. And, mm-hmm. you know, the thing is now is that for, for myself and, and, and my partner, we, we, we don't see ourselves living here anymore. Like right. it's done, you know, the, the line yeah. has been crossed. And yeah, yeah we, we, in the coming months, we're going to leave. Yeah. Wow. Def- definitely. We're going to leave. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's no coming back from this. So it's, it's, it's pretty unfortunate. You know, we've, we've had, uh, we've had a great time in the city, you know, it's, it's a great mm-hmm. city. People are really good, really awesome. Uh, we've met and made many friends and, and had a lot of great times here, but, um, just this, this change, this shift that's happened in the past six weeks Mm -hmm. it's it's too much yeah too many things are changing I get that and I think I would feel the exact same way and it's Mm -hmm. it's very similar to what Elizabeth was saying as well and that was kind of the point of our whole episode with her was she didn't say it in those words exactly that it was the consequences of an overly compliant society but it was this warning essentially like you know if this can happen there, it can happen anywhere. And that's why we need to remain vigilant. 
So you guys telling these stories is so important because I think if people don't hear it firsthand from people experiencing it, it's too hard to believe. Yeah. Yeah. Even for myself, I I have to sometimes slap myself. I'm like, am I actually dreaming a nightmare at the moment? Right. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And um, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's all reality. Unfortunately, it's all actually happening. Well, we really appreciate you coming on. Is there any other like final things you want to get across about it? Or do you feel like you've covered everything that you wanted to say? Yeah, I feel like I've covered just about everything. But, you know, yeah, yeah, I, 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 I just want to say that, you know, we're quite lucky. So like Elizabeth, myself, my partner, we're quite lucky because we have a choice, right? We have the choice mm-hmm. in, in what, in, you know, sure. being able to leave uh, because we come from different countries. But, you know, I really feel for a lot of uh, my local friends here mm-hmm. who are obviously frustrated and feel helpless because, you know, in China, they're not issuing passports and haven't issued any passports for the past two years. <sighs> so, wow. yeah, it, it, it makes it tough. You know, for example, I, I have a I have an Australian friend. He went back um, June 2020 back to Sydney and he hasn't seen his wife in nearly two years and her passport, she doesn't have a passport. She has to get a new passport, but My goodness. because of these restrictions, you know, he's not able to come back and see her because of the, uh, the, the, the border uh, situation currently in China. And, and she's not allowed to go to Australia because she can't get a passport. So it's, in oh, the, yeah, it is pretty, it is pretty heartbreaking. Right. So, yeah. Man, it's, it's like trapped on a, on a different scale. Like, yeah, you were trapped inside the COVID jail and there's other people trapped inside the countries. Yep. Yeah, there are awesome. layers to this. There are layers mm-hmm. to this, yes. right? And, then, yep. and everyone has a, has, has a different story that's, um, mm-hmm. yeah, unfortunately, not great, right? Not good. Yep. Not good, yeah. Yeah, well, thank you for sharing. We, we really appreciate right. it. It's been extremely eye-opening. And I think yep. it's really important. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Very important. Yeah. Well, thank, yeah, thank you both for having me on. And uh, I really appreciate uh, the both of, well, the both of you speaking with me and uh, Farida <laughs> getting in touch with me and yeah, mm-hmm. getting me on the podcast. Yeah. And would you mind if we direct people towards your Instagram, <laughs> your Instagram, your Instagram to check out your highlights yeah, sure. and stuff? Yep. No and problem. what was your handle again? Uh, it's Burpalurp. So B-U-R-P-A-L-U-R-P. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like that's very Australian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. It's very uh, inspired. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Mason. Yep. Thanks for having me. All right, guys. We hope you enjoyed that interview with Mason. Or I don't even know if enjoyed is the right word. I hope that it was eye-opening. Like we know that Elizabeth's interview was eye-opening and we hope that this was even more so as well. I would love it if we could all just keep in mind that quote that he said that was so quotable. I don't even know if he realizes how quotable it was, but what China is experiencing, whether experiencing in Shanghai and in other cities, it is the consequence of an overly compliant society. And compliance has been so celebrated in our countries over the past couple of years. And anything that didn't look like compliance was completely just demonized. And I think we just really need to think about that and consider it. And we may think like Shanghai is a long way away and maybe it is a long way away, but that doesn't mean it's not important. And it doesn't mean that what's happening there can't happen here. Again, when people say stuff like that, it just makes me think like, 
one, you're naive and two, you're arrogant to think that your culture Mm -hmm. is somehow better and that the same thing couldn't happen there. We're all people all across the world and we're all capable of doing terrible things. So it's best to stand on guard. So just be aware. And yeah, we just thank you guys for listening as always. Just a reminder that if you enjoy the podcast, we would love it if you would leave us a rating or a, or a review. It really helps uh, um, other people find the podcast and we really appreciate that. We also have the Boom Clap community. You can find it at theboomclapcommunity.com. It's a place that you can support us for the time and the effort that we put into this, but it's also a place where we just give you extra value and we have live discussions with you as well as we go through different books that we find really important. We're going to have a discussion of our first one, which was The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom. We're discussing that on May 17 and we'll announce the next one shortly after. So if you want to plug in with us that way, you absolutely can. And if you just want to find us outside the podcast, you can find me, Cecily, on Instagram at cecily.dickey or on my website, thegracetogrow.com. And you can find me, Rita, at ritarogersco.com or Rita Rogers Co. on Instagram. Thanks for listening. 